Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Mero Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello, and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore, mythology, we retell the tale, and have a chat about the craft, culture, and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan, and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode number 27 of Fireside. Fireside is officially in the 27 Club. If it were a rock star, this is the episode it would die. But that's not going to happen. We're going to bring you your weekly dose of folklore goodness. Um, That was quite an introduction there, wasn't it? This week on Fireside, we're delving delving right back into Irish folklore with quite a fascinating tale, if I do say so. And it is fascinating, as will not be clear at all from the title, but will be if you've looked at the description for this episode before pressing play. We are doing an Irish adaptation of Cinderella. Not even an Irish adaptation, a version of the Cinderella myth that predates even the grim version, uh, as a lot of other versions of it may have been floating around. Before we get to the tale itself, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, you are very welcome along. Listen to this episode. If you enjoy it, then please do go back to the very beginning, to episode one, and see what we're building up with our journey through Irish folklore and mythology. If you are a continued listener, thank you so much for your continued support. It really does make a difference. It makes this all worthwhile. Please do continue to subscribe, tell your friends, friends, leave ratings, comments. If you're really enjoying the podcast, you can subscribe to the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast. We're trying to take this podcast live to create a live intimate storytelling experience. If you're just enjoying it, though, please do continue to listen to it for free. This is why I do it so that everyone can listen to it anywhere in the world. But I'm going to get right down to the tale itself now and we can have a bit more of a chat later this is the incredibly named fair brown and trembling on fireside fair brown and trembling king hugh karuka was the king of tyr connell which was a kingdom covering areas of what we now know as the counties of Donegal and Fermanagh. King Hugh had three daughters, who were curiously named Fair, Brown and Trembling. Naming a child Fair should have been a reflection on her immediate beauty, or an omen of beauty to come. But bitter irony would come to haunt the girl Fair, for while she was most certainly beautiful, she was not the most beautiful of the three. 
Neither was Brown, because of course Brown wasn't the most beautiful. Her name was Brown. Poor old Brown. It was the meekly named Trembling who was easily the fairest of them all. Because of this, Fair and Brown used to treat Trembling with absolute contempt. Their father had made them all feel guilty their entire lives that none of them were boys. He had always wanted a son to inherit and expand his kingdom. So King Hugh told all three of his daughters that they had a duty to him to marry princes all, so that he would gain powerful allies in the event of war. The pressure of this got to Fair and Brown, who became increasingly paranoid that Trembling's beauty would ensure that she would be the first to marry. To avoid this, Fair and Brown would never allow Trembling out of the house. They would make her stay home to do menial tasks far beneath a princess. Trembling lived up to her name as she feared her sisters, and their father never seemed to notice a thing, so consumed was he with ruling his quarrelsome kingdom. For seven years this cruel torment went on for Trembling, but an end finally seemed in sight when at the end of the seventh year the king of the nearby kingdom of Avon Vaca, in today's county of Armagh, fell madly in love with Fair. Trembling was happy for her sister, but also felt a glimmer of hope that if Fair was engaged, perhaps Brown would soon be too, and Trembling herself would be finally free. She didn't really care about getting married. In fact, to her, that just seemed like jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. First, Trembling wanted to feel like she was living her life for herself, by being free to leave her home. Despite Fair's engagement, she did not start to behave any kinder to her baby sister. Each and every Sunday, she and Brown would go for a walk into the main square of the kingdom, and each and every time, they refused to let Trembling accompany them. The only person who Trembling really had to talk to was the henwife. The henwife was the woman who was in charge of the chickens of a kingdom. Often considered mad or a witch, the henwife was shunned and treated poorly by everyone except Trembling and she in turn was one of the few people who showed trembling an ounce of kindness. One Sunday, enough was enough for Henny. This is ridiculous, child. You are a princess. You should be allowed to go into the main square with your sisters whenever you want. But Henny, I don't even have clothes nice enough to wear out of the house. And even if I did, my sisters would kill me if they saw me there. Child, I'll give you a dress finer than either of those wagons have ever seen. You'll look so ravishing they won't believe their eyes. They won't even believe it's you. You'll be perfectly safe. Now think, child, what's the most beautiful outfit you can imagine? Trembling thought for a moment and said, I want emerald green shoes for my feet and a dress as white as midwinter snow. Oh, an absolute fairy tale classic, said the henwife. She stepped back and donned a cloak of darkness. She cut a piece of trembling clothes off her and spoke an incantation wishing for the ensemble. A moment later, Trembling's entire outfit was an explosion of light, which quickly faded to reveal clothing more stunning and comfortable than Trembling could have possibly imagined. 
but the henwife was not done yet. She also gave Trembling a stunning white mare to take into town. Now go, child, but be warned. You must never get off this horse or stop anywhere for too long. It will only raise questions and suspicions. This kind of feels like the kind of thing you should have brought up before any of this, said Trembling. Never question the henwife. And once Trembling was saddled and ready, Henny smacked the horses behind and Trembling was off. When she got to the main square, Trembling was astonished by all around her. She had never seen so many people all at once. She always kept an eye out for Fair and Brown, spotting them on a number of occasions. She also made sure to never stay in any one spot for too long. For whenever she did, she found that she would be approached by someone, usually a young man. For because she had never seen the outside world, Trembling was unaware of her abject beauty. She had never really understood why her sisters were so awful to her. She assumed it must be the way with all siblings, and so after enough time, she stopped wondering about it. Trembling was sure that a good amount of the attention she was getting was due to her clothes and horse. She was naively unaware that while for sure it was the initial dazzle and mystery of her outward appearance that caught the eye, it was her face that made these would-be suitors attempt a pursuit. But the girl kept to the henwife's instructions and kept riding around until it was time to return home. Trembling arrived back at the castle fort just in time to change out of her fineries and hide them before her sister's return. When Fair and Brown did come home, they were all agog about something. Trembling asked, Did anything happen to you while you were out today, dear sisters? Did anything happen? said Fair. You really do live under a rock, don't you? There was this woman in town today. No one knows who she is, but she is all anyone is talking about. Her shoes, her dress, her face. Her clothes really did put ours to shame, added Brown. Shut up, Brown, said Fair. But you are right, they did. We need to get dresses like that. So Fair and Brown spent the following week demanding identical white dresses with green shoes be made for them, so that they too may gain the attention received by the mysterious woman. When Sunday came around again, the two sisters went out looking better than anyone had seen them. When they were gone, the henwife came to Trembling and asked, "'What outfit would you like to wear to town today, my child?' "'Oh, Henny, I don't know if I should.' Last week was wonderful, but what if I'm caught? You shall have a whole new outfit, my girl. No one will recognize you. If you had a good time, why not go again? After all, aren't you a princess? All right, then. In that case, I'd like a dress of black satin with red shoes. And I want the coat of the mare I ride to be so shiny I can see my own reflection. Now we're cooking with fire, said the henwife, and she donned her cloak of darkness once more, and soon Trembling was off in even more beautiful garb, on a stunning horse who looked like he'd been washed and conditioned by the gods themselves. On her day out, Trembling could barely slow her horse down at all, because any time she did, 
Men, women and children would all call out to her. No one had expected to see her again, and were even more astonished by her beauty this time. Trembling returned home soon after, and again hid her new clothes before her sisters could see them. When Fair and Brown arrived, they were again incensed by the sightings of this mystery princess. Some are saying she is one of the two of the Danon, said Fair. I heard she's one of the ace she, said Brown. Shut up, Brown, said Fair. Us wearing the dresses she was wearing last week when she showed up today in something even nicer made us look like fools. This is all your fault, Brown. The sisters continued arguing until the next Sunday. They attempted to recreate the black satin look they had seen on Trembling, but no such fabric existed in Ireland, at least not in the mortal world. They went out that Sunday in their imitation fashion, telling Trembling on their way out that dinner better be on the table when they return. But of course, as soon as they left, Trembling ran to the henwife and said, I'm going all out this time, Henny. I want a dress red as a rose from the waist down and white as snow from the waist up, a cape of emerald green on my shoulders and a hat on my head with a red, a white and a green feather in it and a shoes, shoes with, with toes red, the middle white and the backs and heels green. Wow, said Henny, that really is going all out. What about and for the horse, interrupted Trembling. I want it to be white with blue and gold-coloured diamond spots all over its body and a bridle and a saddle made out of solid gold. The henwife might have thought Trembling was getting a bit in over her head here, but she had to be honest that she loved seeing the girl value herself and take some pride so Henny took out that cloak one more time and made Trembling's kaleidoscopic tapestry a reality. When Trembling arrived at the market square that third Sunday, it was busier than it had ever been. Every prince from every kingdom in Ireland and abroad had come to seek the hand of the mysterious enchanted princess who rode through Tyr Connell every Sunday. Trembling's horse had to manoeuvre prince after prince from Greece, Norway, France. The prince of Avon Vaca, who, upon hearing about this mysterious woman, had broken off his engagement with Fair, proved to be the greatest challenge. He leapt out and tried to jump on the back of Trembling's horse. I suppose under the impression that if he tamed the horse, he may tame the princess. But the prince missed the landing and ended up grabbing on to Trembling's foot for dear life. He was dragged along until the horse finally bucked him off, but in his hand, the prince still held on to one of Trembling's shoes. The princess was distraught when she got home that she had lost one of Henny's shoes, but the henwife told her not to worry. You never know, child, she said. Losing that shoe may be the best thing to happen to you. The meaning behind the henwife's words, and indeed her entire elaborate long-term plan, soon became incredibly clear. The Prince of Avon Vaca began a manhunt all over Tyrconnell in search of the princess. He had the shoe, so he was looking for whoever the shoe fit. And maybe had the other shoe and was the princess he would recognize. Because surely the shoe fitting couldn't be the only criteria, right? Right? 
When Fair and Brown heard the prince was doing the rounds, Fair was determined to win him back. Even though she was still unaware of the extent of the threat posed by Trembling, Fair and Brown locked Trembling in the closet when the prince of Evanvaka arrived. My prince, I know you no longer wish to marry me, said Fair, but the bitter irony is that it is I who am the mysterious princess. Just let me see that shoe. The prince was, of course, dubious, for although Fair was indeed fair, she did not seem quite as fair as the woman whose shoe he had grabbed. Nevertheless, he allowed Fair to try on the shoe. The eldest princess immediately saw that the shoe was far too small, so she went into a back room and sliced off her baby toe so that the shoe might fit. It was still a struggle, but with four toes, Fair managed to squeeze into the fateful shoe. The prince was still doubtful, so he said, Very well, my bride. Come, walk with me to my horse, that I may ride away with you. But as Fair made her way to the horse, she walked with a severe limp, and the prince was sure he could see blood treacling out from the shoe. On further inspection, the prince very nearly threw up. You are no mystery, princess. Give me back that shoe. Actually, wash it, and then give it back. The devastated fair grabbed the shoe and Brown and went out back again. Brown, you have to fit the shoe now. At least if the prince marries you, he'll still be in my life. And better you than trembling. But it won't fit me either. Shut up, Brown. The toe was too obvious. But if we slice off the back of your heel, we'll be in business. And without hearing any more of her sister's protestations, Fair hacked off poor Brown's heel and squeezed her foot into the shoe. But of course, a variation on the same trick did not work on the prince. For although he was a spoilt, pompous brat with no concept of the real world, he wasn't a total moron. Is there no one else in this household? No one, said Fair. I cut off my heel for this, said Brown. Shut up, liars, came the cry of the henwife. Prince, there is one more daughter, and fairest of all the three is she. Really, said the prince, bring her to me. So trembling was brought to the prince, and she fit the shoe with no maiming or blood. And then she produced the other shoe, and also she was the mystery woman. I've found you, my love. Will you come away with me to be my bride? Oh, uh, wow. Slow down there. It's not that simple. Oh, I suppose you're right, said the prince, misunderstanding, trembling. I still have to fight every other prince for your hand. They refuse to accept my shoe quest as enough of a right. That's not what I began trembling, but it was too late. The prince of Avonvaca first fought the prince of Lachlan, then of Spain, then of Greece. On the fourth day, there were no more foreign pursuers, and the prince of Avonvaca, having proven his worth, was not challenged by any other princes of Ireland, who would not take up arms against a fellow Irishman. The prince and Trembling were married. Although she had not initially wanted to marry him, Trembling leapt at the opportunity to leave her home, and soon she could love the Fountain. The prince and Trembling were soon married. Although she had not initially wanted to marry him, Trembling leapt at the opportunity to leave her house and gain freedom. 
and soon found that she could, in fact, love the prince. She had the henwife brought with her to Avon Vaca and gave her all she desired. Nine months later, Trembling gave birth to the couple's first child, a boy. After giving birth, Trembling fell quite ill and sent for her sister, Fair, to help nurse her back to health. Could this be a redemption arc for Fair? No. The two sisters went out for a walk one day on a cliff's edge, and Fair did not think twice about pushing her sister off the edge where she was swiftly eaten by a whale. Fair then returned back to the prince and claimed that she was trembling and that her sister Fair had returned home. Fair and Trembling may have been sisters and did look alike, but the prince knew his wife. So to prove the matter, that night the prince put a sword between him and Fair and said, If you are my wife, when we wake up, the sword will be warm. If not, it will remain cold. In the morning, the sword was positively Baltic. As for Trembling, the morning after being swallowed, the whale spat her up back on the beach. There happened to be a little cowboy herding some cattle nearby. Little cowboy, you must go and seek my husband, the prince, and tell him to come and rescue me, for I am under an enchantment by this whale. He will spit me up on this beach for three days, and if I am not rescued by my prince on the, by the third day, on the fourth, the whale will eat me forever. The prince must wait until I am spat out, then he must harpoon that whale to death. That is really specific, said the little cowboy. There's no time. Run, little cowboy. So run the little cowboy did, and he came to the castle fort, but first he ran into Fair. He told her he had urgent news for the prince about the princess, so Fair offered the boy a drink. The cowboy thought it rude to refuse, so accepted, then got very drunk and never delivered the message. The next morning, a very hungover little cowboy returned to the beach. When the princess was chucked back up, she said, Is my prince on the way? Oh, about that, um, I forgot. So the cowboy went to the castle again, and this time refused the drink, although he was still tempted. He found the prince, who quickly grabbed his trusty harpoon and made for the beach. He arrived on the third morning just in time to see his beloved thrown up on the shore. Once she was safe, the prince of Avonvaka waited for the whale to dive so that he revealed his vulnerable belly. He cast that harpoon into the whale's gut. Blood diluting the sea waves, the whale sank to its death and Trembling was safe at last. The torment of Trembling at the hands of Fair and Brown could be ignored no longer. Their fate was left to their father, the king of Tyrconnell, who decided that Fair should be placed into a barrel with enough provisions for seven years and then cast into the sea. And poor El Brown was shoved in there with her. Poor Brown. The prince and Trembling would have fourteen children, and their first daughter was married to the little cowboy who had saved the princess's life, eventually. And as for the henwife, well, her plan had worked completely, and no one ever accused her of being mad again, for now they knew for sure that she was indeed a witch, and they all lived happily ever after. The End. <laughs>
And there we have it. The bizarre, unusual and fascinating tale of fair, brown and trembling on Fireside. I hope you all enjoyed it. Let me tell you how I came upon this fairy tale. I came upon it from a very roundabout way. I every so often browse online. There is a there is a Wikipedia article which is literally as simple as just a list of fairy tales from all around the world. It is a very comprehensive list. It's laid out very, very well where it has the name of the folktale, it has its country of origin, its original author, or certainly the one who originally wrote it down or collected it, if it does have such a thing, and around a date for its inception or around when it came into the oral tradition. So it's fascinating and nearly all of the fairy tales and folk tales have a link to the fairy tale itself. Sometimes they have their own Wikipedia page, which I always really enjoy because for starters it's a sign that usually if someone has made its own Wikipedia page that it is of note or of a particular significance or popularity. But if even if there isn't a Wikipedia page of its own, usually there is just a direct link to a version of the folktale, an online version, as nearly all of them do. A lot of the versions that I have in my books by Yeats and Lady Gregory are verbatim online. They're often like the Douglas Hyde versions and the Joseph Jacobs versions. So this is a Joseph Jacobs tale. Joseph Jacobs, who was the Australian folklorist who popularized many of the English folktales, including a lot of the Jack stories like Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack the Giant Killer, all of those, and also did a good few Irish folktale books. And a fascinating and very influential character is he in folklore. And, of course, this is one of the most famous stories of all time. This is, this is Cinderella. And, of course... What you're comparing this immediately to is the Disney version of it. And what I want to talk about is, I want to talk a bit about the Disney version, because the Disney version of Cinderella was one of the ones I had on video as a child. It was one of the ones that I watched all the time. It's actually one I don't really watch anymore. It's one that I, whereas with a lot of the Disney fairy tales, I have started watching them more the older I get, bizarrely enough. This is one that has faded from... My popularity, I view on it. I view it less fondly, even through nostalgia, than I did before. A lot of them have had that reverse effect. For example, I never had Sleeping Beauty on a video, and never really had particular desire to get it. But now, Sleeping Beauty, I view as an absolute unmitigated masterpiece, as it is indeed viewed as Sleeping Beauty. For example, the Disney version is what Walt Disney spent 10 years of his life making, and he wanted that literally to be a storybook on on screen. He wanted that to be visually as stunning as he pictured it in his head, and he did it frame by frame, painstakingly. It nearly bankrupted the entire Disney company. If you can imagine that, if you can imagine the colossal mega-giant that is the Disney company being bankrupt, uh, Disney did it and what an accomplishment it was. And as much, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Cinderella came after. So Cinderella was 1950. Oh, it mightn't have been then, because I think Sleeping Beauty was 1959. Yes, it was indeed. 
So Cinderella wasn't the one to save the company. But Cinderella, as a Disney movie, is viewed now as a film that was very safe. That was a very safe bet for Disney. That there wasn't quite the the same risk taken with things like Snow White or some of the early endeavors. But Cinderella just made so, so much money for the company. It was an absolute giant and understandably why it is a story that is etched in to the minds of children and adults alike and indeed is viewed as a quintessential version of this story to the extent that when people do hear the differences between the grim fairy tale and the disney version they are often shocked and appalled as is often the case when people hear the grim version for the very first time so Let's talk about some of the elements that are different from the Disney version and the Grimm version, and then we'll talk about this Irish version that we had right here. First and foremost, Cinderella does not go to the ball one time. She goes three times. She goes on three separate nights, and it is only on the third night that the staircase is spread with pitch, which is like a form of tar, and it is init- it is intentionally laid as a trap for her so that the prince can catch Cinderella before she runs off, and the only thing that she catches is one of her glass slippers. There is indeed, there isn't often a fairy tale godmother. In fact, it is usually the ghost of Cinderella's own mother who lives in a tree. So every day, Cinderella, when she's being treated poorly by her stepmother and stepsisters she goes to this tree where her which grew from her mother's grave and she asks her mother for help and her mother sends her a load of birds who make her her dress and off she goes off to the ball to have a bloody great time and over time that grew into the fairy godmother that became bippity boppity boo in the disney version also yeah there's not really any mice what are they gus gus is always the one you remember the little fat fella I loved the little red lad as well, though. What was his name? Red Mouse in Cinderella. I promise this won't all just be me under on there. Jacques! Jacques, yes. Jacques and Gus. That's it, yeah. Oh, I'm delighted. I'm delighted I remember that. Hopefully that little brief Google was worthwhile for you that were scratching your heads rather than you people screaming at me that it was Jack, you idiot. It was Jack. But... One of the other main differences, yes, is, and this is one that wasn't in the version of the Irish fairy tale I found, but I couldn't not put it in, is that, well, for starters, Cinderella's two sisters are not ugly. The concept of the ugly stepsisters is a concept that was invented by Disney as well. Drusella and Melissarella, I think are their names. But in fact, in the story, they are beautiful. They are beautiful of face and black of heart. That is what all three, the stepmother and the two stepsisters, are supposed to be. That is the significance of them, which is, of course, much more interesting from that point of view, that that they are actually beautiful and vain and still horrible to Cinderella, knowing that she's not much of a, a perception of a threat. And... But in the actual grim version, they at the end get their they get their toe cut off and their heel cut off, and that's by the mother, which is just so beautiful. Well, it's disgusting, but it's incredible as a visual. And then at the end, they're at the wedding of the prince and Cinderella. Cinderella's pals, the birds, come back and they peck 
the sister's eyes out. And that is all she wrote for Cinderella's two wicked stepsisters. There is no better version of this being portrayed, this real story, than in Stephen Sondheim's absolute masterpiece of a musical, Into the Woods, which if anyone hasn't watched or uh, listened to, please do not watch the Disney version. Please do yourselves and never, please forget that that exists. But there is an entire filmed version of the original stage production and... There's obviously the soundtracks of it on Spotify as well. And again, listen to the original if you can. Or other stage versions of it. But please stay far away from the Disney version. It just it just took too many liberties. It just changed what is so beautiful about Into the Woods as a piece. And Into the Woods is all... I think I have talked about it on this podcast before. It is an imagined fairy tale multiverse. You like... <laughs> A, Diz, a Marvel universe, so to speak, where all of the grim fairy tales and some of the English fairy tale characters like Jack from the Beanstalk, they live in this one forest together. And Act One is all of their different stories playing out, including a fictional original story about a baker and his wife. And at the end of Act One, they all have their happily ever after. And in Act Two, it's about what happens after happily ever after. And it is an incredible view on fairy tales and how life isn't a fairy tale. And it's done with the most incredible, beautiful music. I had the great pleasure of doing this show in my final year of college, of drama school, where I played the baker. But you have the full Cinderella story. Cinderella's one of the main characters in the show. And you have her whole entire arc, including her sisters be getting the chop and getting the eyes pecked out. So if you want to get a really good experience firsthand of some of the original grim versions of these tales, then you can look no further than checking out Into the Woods. Just in general, listen to it, because just the music alone is absolutely stunning. I would say that, though. He's one of my favourites. But let's talk about the Irish version now. So this is, yeah, Joseph Jacobs collected this and called it Fair, Brown and Trembling. And what better name could you possibly want? Just Brown. They called a character Brown. How could you have a character called Brown and not say shut up Brown so many times? Poor old Brown. Especially naming a child Fair. Like, even Trembling's not a great name, but, like, you'd rather Trembling than just being called Brown. Imagine you being described as Brown. I was chatting about this before, that, you know, brown hair and brown eyes are very common, but there's, like, a complexity to them that they're nice. They're not seen as the same as just being described as Brown or being named Brown. So poor old Brown, even though she clearly wasn't as nasty as Fair even though they were both only nasty because of their condition, they are horrible to poor out trembling. And the henwife, we have this character of the henwife, which is again a thing like the egg woman when we did this tale of the tobacco quest, if people can remember that from listening before. Even, I'd never heard of a henwife either. And apparently a henwife is a, was a derogatory term to describe a man who was mad for chasing young ones was like, oh, he's a bit of a henwife, which is incredible. That's gas, I think. But she takes the place of our fairy godmother here. But what I quite like about this version, which is different from Disney and from Grimm, is that Trembling, our Cinderella character, she plays a lot more of an active part. You know, it 
the the dresses and all like of course it's it is Henny who gives her this power and has the magic to give her these dresses and all but I love that the designs of them are entirely Trembling's idea and that each time she grows and grows in confidence that uh, that active part that she takes uh, I like quite a bit and also I love the idea of this of this being an elaborate plan by the henwife that she creates this mystery by having Trembling ride around town because in the original Irish story it's a church that they go to. It's not a ball. It's not a market square. Each each Sunday, Fair and Brown go into church and Trembling isn't allowed to go to church with them. And she rides to the back of the church and she's told to stay at the back of the church and not enter. And then as soon as mass is over, to leave and ride back to home. And so that's where everyone sees her. They keep turning around and they see her standing at the back, but no one can get out to her. But again, I didn't see the reason why it had to be a church why have a needless, the devil and all have crept in and like they've served the story. So I've been a little bit more lenient on my trying to distance myself from the Christianization of these folktales and mythology. But I saw no reason for it to be a church when it could just easily be a market square. And also I liked the idea of her riding around. I thought it added to this mystery of her that she was viewed as this kind of fairy creature. And you had all these princes coming from all of these different kingdoms. That's another thing that I believe is only in this version, is uh, all the princes competing for the hand of trembling. Including, a little Easter egg there, the Prince of Lachlan, who was, which was the kingdom in our last Fionn McCool myth, the Hostel of the Quicken Trees. It was the son of the King of Lachlan who ends up messing over Fionn by making him stuck at the Hostel of the Quicken Trees. So I thought that was a nice little co- coincidence there. Lachlan, which is of course now Norway, I believe so. It's one of the Scandinavian countries anyway. But the biggest and my favourite difference to this tale from the Grimm or the Disney is of course Trembling being eaten by a whale. That's wonderful. As I was reading this, I was wondering, you know, are people going to stay? Because a lot of the folktales I do here are ones that people don't know and so don't, well, I'm sure can sometimes see how they're going to end because a folktale will, will always be slum, somewhat predictable in its outcome, except some of these particularly bizarre ones. But here, this is one we all know, so we all know it's happily ever after. But what a curveball to be thrown just there at the very end that she gets eaten by a whale. And not just that, an enchanted whale who spits her up three days. The rule of three is obviously gospel in folktales. But what a rule of three here, that she will be swallowed and spat up by a whale, and only if the whale can be harpooned by her beloved will she gain it back. And this little cowboy, now I know, I know that when they say little cowboy, they just mean like a young boy who is herding some cattle. But admit it, you can't not picture what I picture still. And that's just a small little cowboy in a hat and spurs and just a little Woody from Toy Story figure. Just as soon as it was described as little cowboy, I was done. He was almost something that I was going to cut from it, but then I couldn't. I couldn't cut the little cowboy who goes and ends up getting hammered rather than delivering the message. It's an incredible, yeah, like, it's a little curveball. It's a lovely little 
just bizarre twist at the end of what is otherwise a very classic, almost predictable fairy tale. And what an incredible version it is, because we had Mr. Fox before. Mr. Fox is the only other one so far, I think, that has a root, has a direct root in Grimm fairy tales, except for maybe some of the Jack tales we did in America. I think there is a Jack the Cunning Thief in Grimm as well. And I had spoken about maybe starting to do more Irish adaptations of Grimm tales. Some of them will just be me reading the Grimm tale and then finding my own version through that. But where possible, because this is obviously so different. This has so many different elements to it as, as much as being the same theme and basically the same structure. There is so much that makes this its own version and so unique. And a lot of it is just this Joseph Jacobs version. I've, as I always do, flourished and expanded where and try to make the characters a little bit more give them something at least underneath them and some other side to them but mostly all of the particularly bizarre elements of this story they're right there in the pudding they're right there in joseph jacobs so i can't wait to see what other famous grim fairy tales have uh such a steeped root in irish mythology that possibly even predates the one final thing i want to talk about and this is kind of getting into real folklore theory and this is something that i hadn't thought of before any actual folklorists who listen to this podcast they should know all about this i'm sure and that's the arn thompson classification system so this is this is a system by which folk tales are sorted so it's it's quite recent i think it's only let's see since 2004 Oh, no, wait, it's older than that. That's when it became the Iron Thompson Uther classification system. But it was started by folklorists named Auntie Iron and Stith Thompson. Shocker, I'd say they were... Oh, no, they were Finnish. They weren't German. <laughs> that was my assumption that they were from where Grimm would be from. But this is the system that is used to classify fairy tales. So what do I mean by that? For example, when I looked up Fair Brown and Trembling, which did have its own page to have an example of, it says that it's classed as an Aaron Thompson 510A story, which is the story of Cinderella. So it's basically like... I've spoken a good bit about the comparative mythologist Joseph Campbell, who had the theory of the monomyth, that all stories are just the one story, and that is the hero's journey. This is kind of a similar thing, where there are about, like, a handful of... a handful of block... of block archetypical stories that a lot of folktales can be categorized into. They're not always quite literal so for example there's a type that's called the cat as the helper but that could also be a fox or a dog there are stories that fit that so for example i'll read out some of them so there is atu328 which is the boy steals the ogre's treasure there's also the smith and the devil the animal bride the grateful animals rescue by sister godfather death beauty and the beast friends in life and death the name of the supernatural helper. So that Rumpelstiltskin is given as an example of that. There's the Grateful Dead. There's the Clever Horse. There's a huge, expansive system. And a lot of them fit a few. They'll, also, they'll often have a 
primary type, it seems, and then also have elements of others. So obviously Fairbrown and Trembling is literally the Cinderella type is what it's known as, as the pinnacle example of that story. But the Cinderella trope, I'll read out for you here as it has, is written as, A young woman is mistreated by her stepmother and stepsisters and has to live in the ashes as a servant. When the sisters and the stepmother go to a ball, brackets, church, they give Cinderella an impossible task, example, sorting peas from ashes, when she accomplishes with the help of birds. She obtains beautiful clothing from a supernatural being or a tree that grows on the grave of her deceased mother and goes unknown to the ball. A prince falls in love with her, but she has to leave the ball early. The same thing happened on the next evening, but on the third evening, she loses one of her shoes. The prince will only marry the woman whom the shoe fits. The stepsisters cut pieces off their feet in order to make them in fit into the shoe, but a bird calls after attention to this deceit. Cinderella, who has been hidden from the prince, tries on the shoe and it fits her. The priest marries her. So it has, that's the description of the tale. And also it has combinations. So this type is usually combined with episodes of one or more others. And it gives examples. So like 327A, 403, whatever they are, there are always going to be other elements that they cross into. So, for example, obviously, I said for example, and obviously quite a bit in this town. Cinderella, or Fair Brown and Trembling, has a lot of those elements, but for it doesn't have the stepmother, and it doesn't have the tree, but it has some version of everything. It even mentions there that the ball is substituted for a church in some of these versions. So I just wanted to give a little bit of a mention to that and a bit of a, if anyone does understand that more, I hope I haven't explained that appallingly there. That's definitely, I've said before that my interest in these stories is not academic. It is as as stories and from a writing and performance and just oral point of view rather than the the, not to say stuffy academic point of view, but just that that has been a podcast before and that is what folklore has become and that's almost a more anthropological view of it which is incredibly interesting and it is something i'd like to learn a little bit more about but i think that system is almost me getting in a little bit out of my depth but i look forward to seeing it crop up a little bit more and learning a bit more about because it is definitely fascinating and i'm surprised it's the first time i've seen that probably because i haven't ever done a folktale quite as famous as Cinderella. So I'm sure if I move into more of those more world-famous folk tales, they'll have this Arne Thompson classification system will pop up more and more. So I hope you find that interesting, and I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. I just want to give one final shout-out to one of our listeners. I want to shout-out to Cassie, or she's known as on Instagram... Something ghost, isn't it? Zombie ghost. Yeah, I'm surprised I forgot that. Anyone who listened to last week's episode, which was the pursuit of Dermot and Gronia, was it? No, that was a couple of weeks ago. This this is the first episode I've recorded since the pursuit of Dermot and Gronia came out. So this will be about two, if not three weeks later. I think two weeks later. But I just wanted to thank Zombie Ghost and apologize to anyone who listened to that episode and had no sound. I looked. I got a message on Instagram from this follower saying that she couldn't hear, that there was no audio on the file, 
and that it wasn't justified because there was an ad playing at the beginning of the podcast but then nothing else and that was on Spotify at least so I listened to it on Spotify and then on iTunes and a few of the other apps and I wasn't getting any audio at all for it but contacted producer slash editor Jamie and we got it sorted almost immediately and I hope no one else had any trouble with it but hopefully there shouldn't be any other problems like that and I apologize if you did have trouble listening to that episode because that was one of my favorite episodes to record so I wanted to make sure that that one and all of them do end up being good so thank you so much Cassie for messaging me and for putting that right again it's just it's lovely to be reached out to it's lovely to know that there are people out there listening to it who want to listen to it more and more so that makes me feel very good so thank you and please do continue to listen so I will wrap things up now for another episode next week we'll be diving right back in to Irish mythology we're coming to the end of the Fenian cycle next time I believe we have the final battle of the Fianna if you can imagine it but that's all to come now I will see you all you will hear me all next time on the fireside thank you and goodbye this podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network